0: Бутик Политик. Авторская программа Кирилла Задова, посвященная текущим мировым проблемам. Бутик Политик. Предвзятый обзор, субъективные комментарии и искренние оценки Кирилла Задова. С понедельника по четверг с 4 до 5. Бутик Политик. Сказал, как обрезал. Приветствую, друзья. С вами Кирилл Задов. Это Бутик Политик. Сегодня 31 марта, год 2022 четверг. Последний рабочий день для этой программы на этой неделе. Как я обещал, нам удалось организовать интервью с профессором Эфраевым Энбаром, который является президентом, возглавляет институт Иерусалимский институт стратегии безопасности. Сразу после небольшой э, рекламной паузы мы вернемся и начнем этот разговор. Друзья, я напоминаю, что Руис и радио является абсолютно коммерческой диастанцией, не получает никакого иностранного финансирования. Ваш покорный слуга высказывает в этой программе свое собственное мнение, которое часто может не совпадать с мнением редакции, и даже в большинстве случаев так и происходит, кстати. И опять же, никакого иностранного финансирования ваш покорный слуга не получает. Для всех, кто думает по-другому. Бутик-политик. Сказал, как обрезал. It's, my, uh, it's honor for me to introduce professor uh, president of Jerusalem Institute of Strategy and Security. Professor Howare, welcome on board.
1: A pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'm fine.
0: Mm. And that's your first trip to United States after pandemic, or you've been already here before like, during the last no, two years? No,
1: actually, uh, it's uh, I've not been in the United States for more than two years. I was uh, closed at home because of the pandemic, and uh, uh, I like America, so it's be good to be here for a while before I go home back.
0: Pleasure to, to see the- you here, right? Uh, that's kind of the pleasant part of our conversation. I would like to ask you first that Putin obsession with NATO and with threat that, according to Putin, NATO represents for Russia. Is it justified, in your opinion?
1: Listen, I, I don't want to give uh, any marks to anybody, but I can understand the Russian position, uh, and I think uh, it is understandable in light of... Uh, the historic sensitivities of the Russians and in light of the fact that uh, Russia was attacked from the West uh, many times in its history, that it wants uh, some kind of margins of uh, security uh, on its uh, Western border. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, other countries uh, want as well. The Americans have a Monroe Doctrine in which they don't want, uh, you know, foreign Powers to be in the Western Hemisphere, and uh, this is of also understandable. Uh, countries are fearful of each other. Uh, we are not yet uh, in a paradise, <laughs> and uh, countries are uh, taking care of their security. Only some Europeans think that they are already
0: in a zone uh, of peace. You know, the right,
1: messianic era.
0: Right, right. The end of history. Uh, so if. It's understandable from political realism point of view. Why? How can you explain uh, refusal of American administration to discuss security concerns of Russia in convers- in, the dialogue, in a dialogue, in a talk, in, a, in a talks later uh, before before the war started?
1: Unfortunately, I cannot understand. I cannot understand. I cannot explain uh, the American position. I think it's, there are certain hubris on part of America after the end of the Cold War and also some kind of missionary drive to bring democracy everywhere. And so they expanded NATO and the EU toward the east. And I've always believed that this was a strategic mistake and ignoring, you know, fears by a strong country such as Russia.
0: As far as uh, war and... Uh, campaign, military campaign is developing, what do you think, uh, because all Western media present that as a failure of planning, as a failure of military campaign, is a uh, big mistake on the Putin side. What do you think from military point of view, as uh, like a military assessment, how's campaign going? Is it uh, open? We can see, all of us can see that uh, the mistakes were made on the planning stage. It's already 36 days of the war. No major city is taken by Russian, uh, by Russian force, and it's uh, like uh, very hard. A lot of casualties from uh, uh, civilians, a lot of casualties of uh, military personnel. How would you assess first 36 days of war?
1: First of all, I don't know the Russian plans. Uh, I, I don't. I'm not privy to this type of intelligence, so I don't know what the real plan was. In any case, uh, it wasn't a a blitzkrieg, quite obviously. And uh, it seems that uh, Putin was uh, to some extent misinformed about the ability of his own uh, military. And he underestimated the capabilities of the Russian military uh, to do a job uh, quickly. Probably it would have been looked better and this is what most people expected that the Russian will uh, be able to advance uh, quickly and uh, take over um, some important cities, including uh, the capital, and uh, stay put and uh, bargain with, uh, with the West uh, over uh, what's going to happen. Uh, it seems that the um, Russian military has some difficulties in advancing, it also had to recur to uh, a lot of firepower, uh, which of course it uh, creates a very bad publicity for, for Russia because we see a lot of Russian, uh, Ukrainian civilian uh, being killed. We see tremendous damage to the civilian infrastructure in, uh, in Ukraine. And uh, this is not a good uh, public relations campaign for Russia and uh, it does not instill fear among its neighbors if this was uh, the Russian uh, plan.
0: So in your assessment, you would say rather it's uh, like a uh, previous generation warfare that we see right now instead of expected like third and fourth generation of warfare. So everybody was expecting something like Crimea operation. Instead, it's just regular artillery strikes Big massive of troops going to cities, uh, besieged cities. But if we compare that to American company against uh, Islamic State in Syria, for example, it was a very long, very long siege of Raqqa and carpet bombardment of Raqqa with huge amount of civilian casualties and nobody was saying anything. How could we reconcile? How can we reconcile the things?
1: The, the American press uh, is uh, <laughs> obviously uh, more benevolent toward uh, what the Americans were doing uh, against the Islamic uh, State. Um, still, I don't know how if it's uh, fourth generation, fifth generation, all those terms are... Uh, uh, I don't like them. War is the same phenomenon over the years. And uh, war is use of force in order to coerce uh, your enemy to agree... To your terms. And actually, what we see already, in my view, is partially a Russian victory. Uh, Ukraine wanted uh, to be part of NATO, wanted to be part of uh, the European Union, and uh, they announced already that they are not going to join NATO. Uh, They announced that uh, they are going uh, to adopt a, a neutral position in their foreign policy between the West and and Russia, so I think uh, if this was a goal of Putin, uh, he achieved it. Uh, wars are messy; that's true, and uh, you know it is a messy war. And uh, of course, uh, knowing how Russians think, uh, <coughs> if civilians are killed, so be it. You know that's that's war, and uh, they want uh, surrender. And uh, I think. Uh, uh, the Ukrainians made uh,
0: a mistake in not surrendering earlier. In the, I mean, in in terms of civilian casualties and damage, huge damage to infrastructure, yeah. of course. But uh, neutrality is one thing. But in those peace talks that were ending Tuesday in Istanbul, Ukraine proposed certain security guarantees, which include uh, guarantees from Great Britain, France, Germany, Turkey and Israel, out of those countries, only Israel, not a NATO member, and the base of those security guarantees should be the same as Article 5 of NATO agreement. So, meaning those countries that are going to provide those security guarantees, if Russia agree to that, they're going to uh, place certain military infrastructure in Ukrainian territory as a preventive measure against potential Russian aggression in the future. So, what exactly going to be neutral status if all major NATO members are going to protect Ukraine and give Ukraine security guarantees. So, it doesn't look to you that Ukraine goes on the other way to NATO, creating parallel NATO military infrastructure, military alliance, that's going to be duplicated to NATO.
1: I, I want to remind you that uh, Ukraine had already international guarantees to their territorial integrity.
0: But not like if on I Fitts, say, yeah, but not like 5th nah. article of NATO agreement. It was not like no, a collective defense.
1: countries like the United States and the UK, they pledged that they are responsible for the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and of course, they violated their pledge. Crimea was taken, the Donbas republics were established at the expense of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and so and nothing came out of those international guarantees. I think uh, one main lesson uh, from my point of view is that you should not rely on international guarantees.
0: It's Habesian world, self-help, take care right? Of
1: yourself. And uh, the approach by the Ukrainians, maybe it's, you know, uh, uh, saving face, but uh, in practical terms international guarantees are worthless.
0: We were thinking that it's only for Israel true. but. It looks like it's true for everyone. So Habesian political realism is still alive today. It's a self-help. Nobody's yeah, going to come to risk you. But...
1: Uh, Czechoslovakia had guarantees. <laughs> you know, and look back at history. Poland, guarantees. Poland had guarantees, right. Only if, uh, you know, the countries that are guarantors are really taking uh, it seriously. It's not necessarily the case.
0: Right. So my next question is that uh, let's... Uh, which to little west from Ukraine. So now, do you think Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland do they have right now legitimate concern as they perceive Putin threat to them that he may invade their territory? Do you think it's legitimate?
1: Of course, they they, they are afraid. They should be afraid uh, that Russia might invade those countries that were part of uh, you know their. Uh, area of influence uh, during the uh, Cold War. At the same time, I think they have somewhat less uh, reason to fear uh, taking uh, uh, into consideration the performance of the Russian army. So uh, it goes both ways. Uh, In any way, uh, if uh, Poland or the Baltic States uh, will hire me as an advisor, I would tell them prepare for defense Don't make mistakes uh, by poking uh, the eye of your uh, big uh, neighbor. Uh, You know, you live next to a bear, uh, which can be aggressive. You should be careful. I think Ukraine was not careful enough.
0: I'm watching Great Britain and Poland behavior, and as always, I find it very provocative. Uh, The question is very purely hypothetical, but... uh, can Poland or Great Britain make certain movement that provoke Russia to like to start shelling Poland, for example? In your opinion, right now is the situation right now? They will even ask United States. You remember the story to take uh, MiG uh, fighters, jet fighters, to Ramstein, Germany base, and then to transfer them to Ukraine for fight. And uh, only I think only Russian. Uh, Statement that any NATO airdrome, uh, airfield that going to be used for Ukrainian air jets for bombing Russian troops will be considered like NATO's joined the war. That was a statement from Ministry of Defense of Russia that stopped it. Pentagon said right away, stop. No, we're not going to transfer any jets. But in the future, Great Britain, as in history, sometimes happened, uh, can be more assertive in what they do. So can, can that war bring third world war? That's what, that's a question, basically.
1: We should not uh, exaggerate the weight of UK, uh, you know, in, in this uh, situation, and basically uh, Washington will call the shots. And Washington made it quite clear. Uh, I'm not sure it was wise to make it clear that they have no intention of fighting, and they have no intention of uh, uh, being drawn into a war uh, in the Ukraine. Uh, situation, uh, which actually gave Putin a free hand to do what he wants and also gave him the time needed. He doesn't fear uh, American intervention unless there will be a big change in America. But uh, so far uh, President Biden uh, is insistence that he is not going to be drawn militarily into the
0: conflict. Professor, but I have to remind you that in 1999 Bill Clinton also didn't want to bomb Serbia. But it's Tony Blair coming to the United States, and his speech in Congress forced them to take an action.
1: Everything is possible. But uh, uh, I don't see the Brits, you know, really caring so much about Ukraine. Uh, I think uh, they are... Uh, More concerned.
0: Yeah, more concerned with Brexit BB and Johnson b- b- Brexit boost, boost party. and other right. things. right?
1: So their plate is full. I don't think they are looking for an adventure in Eastern Europe.
0: I hope so too. Uh, let's thank thank you very much for your Ukrainian, uh, uh, Ukrainian view. I just wanted to switch to Israeli topic. I just have to remind our listeners that Professor is with us today on air. Uh, president of Jerusalem Institute of Strategy and Security. Professor, that last wave of uh, terrorist activities for last week in Israel, we saw 11 killed people and couple more attacks, a lot of wounded people, and uh, mostly perpetrators were Israeli Arabs. What does it tell you about near future perspective? Where it's going to? <clears throat>
1: You know, we live with terror for 100 years. There's nothing new about it. Uh, uh, I'm not sure that your characterization of the events of the terrorist uh, attacks in Israel, the recent uh, terrorist activities, can be called a wave. It's an accumulation of uh, several uh, uh, terrorist activities. Part of them were perpetrated by Israeli Arabs. Uh, and uh, part of them were perpetrated by uh, uh, Arabs in, uh, in of the Palestinian Authority in Judea and Samaria. Uh, so I, I'll, I would be careful in, in calling it a wave at this stage. Maybe uh, you know in the near future we'll be able to characterize it a step. And uh, there are two separate responses uh, required for uh, for dealing with this type of terrorists. Uh, In the West Bank, uh, of course, uh, we need uh, uh, to be more active, but we should remember that uh, probably uh, only 1% of the planned terrorist attacks against Israel from the West Bank are successful due to the work of the Israeli intelligence services. And uh, I think that uh, no Israeli has the illusion that we have a full-proof defense against terrorist attacks. The Israeli Arabs is a different story. Uh, they are uh, citizens of the state of Israel, and our security services are limited in their ability to sur- for surveillance, in their ability uh, to uh, arrest them. You know, it's a democratic country. We have to show to the uh, judicial systems that uh, there is a reasonable uh, <clears throat> suspicion uh, in order to uh, have preventive, uh, you know, uh, jailing uh, and uh, and surveillance. So, but can difficult.
0: you? But can you? I'm sorry for interruption. But can you declare emergency in this case? Then all civilian liberties can be suppressed up for for a certain amount of time.
1: You know, calling emergency would be a victory for the.
0: Terrorists.
1: <laughs> I think that we should uh, be able, and I think Israel was able, to uh, routinize this type of conflict. We we live with it, and I think that this is the right response. We should not be hysterical. Um, after all, terrorism is can is of limited damage. Today was. Uh, an attack, you know, using a, not even a knife. So uh, not always they have weapons. They they cause limited damage to Israel. And uh, Israelis understand that if they want to have a state in this tough neighborhood, there is a price to pay, and unfortunately it's in blood. But we can live with, uh, with terrorism. Terrorism is not a strategic threat. Uh, Iran is a strategic threat, a nuclear bomb is a strategic threat, but not terrorism. No. Then, terrorism I want to. is the weapon of the weak. We should never forget that.
0: Then, then. In retrospective, last year in May, I think, there was a huge deal of Arab revolts. Like thousands and thousands of Arabs in places that uh, are Arab places, they were marching, Accra, Jaffa, they were marching, They some of them had weapons. And they were screaming things that uh, made me feel like I'm in 1948, not in 2021. It's a kind of exaggeration, of course, because I'm not living in Israel. I'm visiting sometimes, thanks God, but I'm not living there. But I spoke, I recently visited Israel, and I spoke to people, and they were saying that those uh, revolts, those uh, marches, they are, they feel really threatened by that. And Keeping in mind double loyalty of any Arab citizen of Israel because he has probably relatives beyond the defensive shield, defense, defensive wall, separation wall. And uh, those people are limited in their rights, of course, because they, for Israeli security, they cannot cross at will the border. They cannot come to the relatives. And the uh, number of Israeli Arabs now is, is more than 2 million people, right? If I, if I, uh... Yeah, around. Uh, and around the same in you, and Around the same in Judea and Samaria. Probably like that. Maybe a little more, but we don't know. I don't know exact number. it's a million more. So it's a lot. It's a, if we add everything, we see that it's about 60 on the territory from Mediterranean to Jordan River. It's about 60-40 proportion. 60% Jews, 40% Arabs. And it's, it's a huge proportion. And if they coordinate what they're doing, they may present existential threat, don't you think? If they uh wishes and they like if they're not treated properly in their opinion, they can unite. I mean Arabs of Israel and Arabs of Yudava Shamron can unite because they're relatives, they represent the same clans. So there's not a big difference between them. You think it's not more important threat to Israeli security than Iran?
1: No. I don't think that. Uh, although I uh, definitely do not uh, look down upon what happened in last May, it was uh, uh, of great concern, and Israel should prepare for this scenario. I would like to point out that um, you know the numbers you are saying are not are not the problem. The problem is that five percent of those numbers, could create tremendous damage to Israel. And we should concentrate on those 5% that are potentially very dangerous. And uh, I think that uh, Israel, for years, has neglected uh, to implement its sovereignty in areas that uh, Arabs live. Uh, in the Negev, uh, in, in the Galil, and we should uh, have a much greater Israeli presence, be it by police, uh, be it by uh, uh, official of ministries, and to be present there. And uh, this has to be done urgently, uh, because uh, such kind of activities can disrupt military activities. If we have you know in case of war and we have to transfer uh, troops and equipment from the center of the country to uh, to the frontier uh, this is a huge problem and it will take time and effort in order to clear those obstacles
0: you mean those territories so, in Negev that bedouins already uh, have have uh, built like uh, villages, not lawful villages, like illegal, illegal construction that they do. I just recently visited Nagav. I was going to Miss and I saw a friend of mine showed me what they're doing for last years and nobody can, like there's no police, there is no military, nobody's intervened with them. And they have guns, by the way, also and you know that, right? So it's, it's a double, yeah. it's a twofold task. First, you have to reassess uh, reassert Israeli sovereignty there in Negev. And second, you have to uh, take away the weapons they have.
1: Uh, I think that we've seen uh, recently several operations to collect weapons in the Arab sector. I think this type of operation should be intensified. And to make sure that there is a rule of law. That Israel's law reaches every corner of the state.
0: What about, thing, what about Judea and Samaria? What about Judea and Samaria? What do you think? This What's is your a opinion?
1: Different issue. This Why? is a different issue. Actually, our intelligence capabilities in uh, uh, Judea and Samaria are much better than the intelligence capabilities that we have among the Bedouins because of the uh, constraints imposed upon us though uh, those services by israel being a democratic state and having to the uh, there are things that the israeli securities can do uh, easily in the west bank but they can't do it in the Negev
0: or in arab villages so the tactical move would be in negative and... to
1: change the law right. no no not we necessarily not
0: necessarily you can say you can declare it military closed territory and do whatever you need
1: I don't think that's easy and I don't think uh, we should punish uh, a large segment of the Arab population and we should try to find the the needle in the haystack. This is the right approach. To counter terrorism you need intelligence right? and just massive military measures have proven in the past as being ineffective. And in antagonizing the civilian society, civilian population, and we have no reason to antagonize them, particularly since most Arabs in Israel, by the way, also in the West Bank, are not actively participating in terrorist activities.
0: Agree. But in in March, there were a lot of people. A lot of people. It looked lot like lot people, huge, it's big crowds, big crowds. A la- big crowds, but if we are uh,
1: uh, speaking about a population of 2 million people, we are talking about a few thousand, maybe 10,000, maybe 15,000, no more. So we have to keep you know, in mind the, the proportion.
0: Right, that's and, true. Don't panic, right, you're right. You're absolutely right. But that everything what you're saying right now is a short-term solution still. In a long-term solution, two and a half million Arabs of Yudava Shamron, Judea, Samaria present certain security threat. What do you think, in your opinion, what do you think should be done with that territories in the future? Like in uh, like next two, three, maybe five years. What's your, what's your approach to this?
1: I think that, uh, unfortunately there is no possibility to reach a political agreement with the Palestinian Authority. That is divided between you know, the PAs, Palestinian Authority and Hamas and also we see no uh, mellowing of the traditional Palestinian position vis-à-vis Israel. So, uh, unfortunately, the only uh, policy, viable policy is to manage the conflict. We should try to uh, limit uh, bloodshedding on both sides, to limit the suffering on both sides, and uh, leaving uh, the future uh, to to the future. We we don't know what will happen. Uh, Generally, uh, we should realize that we live in an area that use of force is part and parcel of the rules of the game. It is popular. People like their leaders to use force. Uh, nobody disarms. This is the area we are living in. And, uh, you know, <laughs> looking for solutions, maybe it's the wrong approach.
0: So you're against annexation. Productive. You are against annexation, as I understand, and taking Judah, and Shamron.
1: Why should I give them status uh, of Israeli citizen? In 20 years, no, in Alex- I'm not totally against annexation. When the uh, Trump plan was on the agenda um i and my institute suggested uh, to annex part of the judaism area according to three criteria one that is strategically important we have to recognize that every hilltop is strategically important and a second criteria is not, uh, to an area in which there are not too many arabs in order not to burn us ourselves with what we call the democratic pro- uh, problem and the third criteria, that this area is within Israeli consensus. For example, uh, Hebron, Jordan Valley. But Hebron? Maybe Hebron, but Jordan. I am speaking particularly about the Jordan Valley and the area surrounding Jerusalem. So um, uh, we should not tear our society apart uh, if we can leave those difficult decisions for the future.
0: Agreed. Uh we will continue right after short commercial break in couple two minutes, I think, three minutes, and we'll we're back on air. Thank you very much, Professor. Boutique Politik <laughs> <laughs> Professor, welcome back. Thank you very much for staying with us. I understand that you probably have a jet lag still. A little bit. A little bit. Listen, uh I wanna switch a little bit to like a... Uh, Outer circle of Israeli security, Arab, whatever they call Arab Spring, made uh, immediate like borders are more secure in my opinion. Like Syria is no longer Syria that we had. Uh, Egypt now, after Morsi was overthrown, is more secure for Israel. It's a part of a bigger kind of sunni NATO picture that trying to be built right now. Uh, Jordan is sometimes present issues, but basically. Uh, Everybody interested in uh, security paradigm that was existing before. Uh, That uh, war that Saudi Arabia uh, have with Emirates against Houthis in Yemen, what do you think about that? Is that present security threat for Israel because the Red Sea makes it like very close war to Israeli borders? Uh, what should be done from Israeli side maybe, maybe to assist Emirates and Saudi Arabia in this war? Because Houthis are saying, I was listening to what they're saying recently again, all that wars right now. They even say that Ukrainian wars, uh, Ukrainian war happened because of Jews. They, they completely, they're very anti-Semitic and they're very anti-Israeli. And they are Iranian proxy. Why we not get ourselves involved with this?
1: Well, first of all, uh, it's important that uh, you recognize that uh, the Houthis are Iranian proxy. And uh, they are fighting uh, the wars of Iran against uh, the Iranian competitors in the region, which are Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, I think that uh, we are helping uh, those countries uh, under the table. Not everything is public. Um, moreover, I think that uh, we are part of the criticism launched at the Biden administration for delisting the Houthi from the terrorist list organizations, which is a huge mistake and totally un- not understandable. Uh, I'm not sure that we should get uh, you know, uh, more involved than we are now. First of all, uh, we have to recognize that uh, they are at a great distance. Uh, at the southern tip of the Red Sea. Uh, We have uh, a naval presence, and I think uh, there is also a naval war going on between Israel and Jordan and uh, Iran uh, in that area. But uh, getting involved uh, in the ground uh, fighting uh, in Yemen, I don't think that's something that Israel should do let others do the job we don't have to do everything we have enough problems for ourselves
0: don't you think it would be great
1: responsibility to to take care of the situation
0: right don't you think uh, it would be very nice for region if united states would be more assertive in this matter and uh, for example provided more uh, guided missiles to saudi arabia and even probably participated in bombing campaign because houthis are not friends of america either
1: Uh, I think that it would be very correct on the Americans to help uh, in terms of military equipment um, and uh, to save some of the unnecessary criticism of the Saudi regime uh, in order to help them fight this war. I think also the criticism against uh, President Assisi in Egypt is, uh, is not helpful. And uh, again, Israel uh, on the hill is trying to mute down some of this uh, criticism and uh, to make sure that the Egyptians are getting what they need uh, with the promised military assistance uh, to Egypt. I can understand maybe the rationale of uh, the Americans to get out of the Middle East and to pivot to China, but... uh,
0: uh, behaving
1: in such a way toward uh, good allies is, uh, I would say, it irresponsible.
0: It's negligence, and it looks like consecutive American, admi- uh, democratic administrations of the of the United States are behaving negligently to Middle East region. And I can even generalize and say, in my opinion, that Democrats are bad for Middle East. <laughs>
1: you know, we, we had some good times with...
0: Uh, with who? With Democratic, Carter? Uh, yeah.
1: uh, no, I'm talking about Clinton. Clinton, who right. was yes. a good friend, uh, So, uh, which is the more recent. So, uh, uh, but uh, I'm certainly worried about the direction of the Democratic Party uh, nowadays, uh, particularly the growing influence uh, of what they call themselves the progressives. Uh, and um, uh, generally, I think that uh, The Democratic Party uh, thinks much less in strategic terms. Uh, To give you just a recent example, they cancelled their support for the East Med uh, pipeline (laughs) that was supposed to bring gas to Europe uh, because of green reasons. You know, I I appreciate the the green concerns, but there is also uh, other uh, important, more pressing
0: pressing concerns, right?
1: could have helped now Europe, you know, limiting its uh, uh, energy dependency upon the Russians. So this was, again, uh, with no strategic foresight. And, uh, well, what can we do? Washington uh, misses the Kissingers and... uh, True. The other uh, realpolitik, you know, uh, people that could have managed a a much uh, better uh, foreign policy.
0: That's absolutely true. Thank you very much, Professor. It's a big honor to have you with us on board. I hope next, uh, when you'll be in Israel, I will be able to connect and we'll be able to discuss more pressing concerns later in uh, in during the year. And it would be a pleasure and honor for us. Professor Fryman Barr, President of Jerusalem Institute of Strategy and Security, thank you very much for your participation and have a good luck, have a safe flight back home and uh, shalom, peace. Thank you very much.
1: Shalom. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of things to speak up because the Middle East is not changing right so,
0: And exactly. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Boutique Politik сказал как обрезал.